So thank you. So we've reached, uh, well, we're almost at the end, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome back uh, Karen Ralph. Uh, Karen is uh, an art historian. Uh, she currently works at St. John's University in Paris, and today she's going to talk to us about the flesh that was crucified in a hideous, awful death, the Lauer Brack and crucifixion imagery in late medieval Ireland. Over to you, Karen. Thank you, Rory. Um, thank you all, uh, well, to the organisers, thank you for having me back. Um, and to all of you, um, thank you for staying till the graveyard shift, uh, even on a bank holiday weekend. Um, and please forgive me for relying on Atkinson for my translations. Uh, after Liam's talk, I feel like uh, I've sinned rather badly. Um, so, sorry. Um, so, the entire want of skill of most of the ancient Celtic artists and craftsmen in the attempts to represent the human figure is notorious. The most august of all the religious subjects appears in our eyes as a veritable caricature, though executed by men who were far from having any such intention. It is not necessary to lay stress on the absence of pathos in these crucifixions, when not only dignity, but any kind of expression and even an elementary notion of anatomy are completely lacking. This rather scathing critique um, of early medieval Irish draftsmanship was presented to the Royal Society of Antiquaries in Ireland by Louis Gougeau in May 1920. His comments were made in response to images of the crucifixion in the, in, like these um, from the Irish Gospels of Sangal and the Southampton Psalter. And while Gujou may have been troubled by the quality of the drawing and expression, he nevertheless acknowledged um, in them a broad characteristic of early medieval crucifixion imagery, and that is the absence of suffering. The Christ in these images is alert, head raised and looking outward, engaging the viewer. He stands before the cross with outstretched arms rather than hanging from it. In fact, in the Southampton Psalter, the sponges raised to Christ's lips are rod between his arm and the cross. The imprints of the wounds are visible in his hands and feet, but interlaced ropes rather than nails bind Christ to the cross. And he is fully dressed rather than stripped of his clothing and chained. The Christ on the Clonmacnoise crucifixion plaque stands comfortably, ready to embrace the viewer with open arms, and, uh, with open eyes and arms and lips parted in speech or a gentle smile. These images were not intended to depict the excruciating agony of crucifixion, but rather the glorious triumph of Christ's victory over death. Changing theological attitudes on the significance of Christ's suffering and death over the course of the 11th and 12th centuries, however, brought about a change in the iconography of the crucifixion across Europe. Anselm of Canterbury explained that Christ's sacrifice was necessary for the remission of sins and proposed prayers to be directed towards the image of the crucifixion, guided meditation on Christ's wounds, and encouraged experience of bodily pain. This theory of self-sacrifice became particularly prominent in monastic piety, with the Cistercians, Dominicans, and Franciscans promoting an active and intimate engagement with the narrative of the Passion. And of course, yesterday in particular, we were discussing a potentially Franciscan audience for the Lara Brack. Thus, medieval devotional practice moved toward uh, vividly imagining Christ's suffering and evocations of sorrow and pity. Later writers, such as St. Bridget of Sweden and Thomas Akempis, meditated further on the physical suffering of Christ and encouraged the devout to focus on all of the agonizing details of the Passion. 
and that such works, important works, were known in Ireland is illustrated in the 16th century inventories of the libraries belonging to the Fitzgeralds of Kildare and, of course, the Franciscans in Yule. Contemporary Irish crucifixion imagery reflected these new theological approaches and broadly followed European iconographic trends with a focus on torment. And I asked yesterday if they would change to the image of the crucifixion um, when they opened the manuscript, so I hope uh, you have managed uh, to see it um, in person. Um, the crucifixion in the Larabrac is a poignant image of suffering. The miniature presents the figure of Christ in the contemporary Gothic manner. The feet are crossed and pierced by a single nail. Attention is drawn to the wounds through oversized nails in both hands and feet, um, and his fingers are clenched in pain around those in his hands. The body of Christ has wilted. His arms are buckling under the weight of his body. His waist is narrow and the rib cage prominently exposed, emphasizing the excruciating torment and recalling for the viewer the languishing of his body in the desert sun. The awkward positioning of the straight legs and crossed feet furthers the distress and makes for uncomfortable viewing. Drained of energy and vitality, his head falls to the side. The Christ in this image is depicted as a mortal man suffering physical human pain. The power of the symbol of the cross is highlighted in two of the passion texts in the Lower Brack. In the account of his passion in the manuscript, Longinus questions a group of demons about why they chose to inhabit pagan idols, and the response he receives claims that they found the stone images without the sign of the cross on them and without being named in the name of God. For where Christ is not honoured, nor the sign of the cross, that is their dwelling forever. Similarly, in the account or sermon um, on the passion of Peter and Paul, an angel marked the sign of the cross on the walls of the temple and declared that having done so, God hath claimed the temple from every impurity and from the presence of the demon who dwelt therein and cautioned that should somebody be led astray, make the sign of the cross over your face as I made over the walls of the temple and every evil shall depart from you. That said, while the cross and crucifixion may be central to Christian doctrine and salvation, the Gospels themselves provide minimal information about the event itself. The Gospel accounts describe aspects of the arrest, trial, death, burial, and humiliation, but none describe the cross itself in any great detail, or the manner in which Christ was suspended on it. The procedure is stated simply as they crucified him, but as historical sources and archaeological evidence suggest, the methods of crucifixion were considerably varied. Artists and writers have therefore sought inspiration from a range of sources, including patristic exegesis, Old Testament texts and prophecies, the Psalms, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and perhaps local laws and customs. The emaciation of Christ's body that we see here in the Lower Brack, and as we see so often in images of the crucifixion, such as here um, on the crucifixion plaque from Fur to County Kilkenny, um, or on the tombs, uh, tomb chest in Holy Cross Abbey in Tipperary, um, is derived from a sermon of St. Bernard on the Passion that interprets, I can count all of my bones from Psalm 21 or Vulgate 22, to mean that Christ was stretched taut on the cross, revealing his ribcage. The Passions in the Lower Brack are particularly interesting in this regard. Um, in keeping with the wider tradition, the text of the first account of the Passion of our Lord avoids any details of Christ's execution, um, and instead comments that two thieves were crucified, one on each side of him. The third account, on the other hand, is more specific and states that the soldiers had crucified him and driven iron nails through his palms and his feet. 
Christ on the Lower Brack is crucified on a Latin cross. Um, and this is also true um, in the case of the tomb of Edmund Archer and his wife in Thurles County Tipperary, um, and on the tomb of Donald McPierce Archdeacon um, and his wife from Dungarvan County Kilkenny. Um, now, the image on the left um, I, I took very recently, um, but as you can see, it has degraded considerably. So the image on the right, um, I've included Evan Ray's um, image, uh, where the shape of the cross is considerably um, e more easy to understand. Um, uh, and, and often, as we see um, in the Larabrack, the terminals of the crossbeam are enlarged um, and draw further attention to the wounds in the hands. Um, we also see this um, in a tomb slab from Inish Teague in County Kilkenny and the Purcell tomb in St. John's Priory, also in Kilkenny. The form of the vertical beam of the cross may also bend to accommodate the twisted body of Christ, um, as we see in the shrine of the Book of Dima, um, which was refurbished between 1380 and 1407. Um, or the Shrine of the Stone Missal, um, refurbished between 1371 and 1381, um, which offers uh, surely the most grumpy um, and unhappiest uh, of the Christs. Um, elsewhere, um, as on the tomb of Sir Walter Birmingham in Dunfierce, County Kildare, um, and the Trinity Slab from St. Mary's in Callan, which is now in St. Canice's, a Tau cross appears. Sometimes the cross appears as a tree, um, as we see in the bell shrine of Conal Cael, um, or with foliate detailing as on a fragment from Kilcormick in County Offaly, um, which may have been part of a 16th century tomb chest. In some cases, um, the cross may be absent from the scene altogether, and um, though this typically only occurs on shrines where the overall form of the object stands for the cross. Um, we see this, for example, with the Danachargid the um, refurbished around 1350, um, and again in the 15th century. Um, or the uh, Shrine of the Mishuk, uh, which was reworked in 1534. The design of the Larabrack cross is spare and unadorned, and while the titulus board was a common feature of medieval European crucifixion iconography, it appears very infrequently in Irish representations. Uh, rare examples occur on the tomb of Bishop Walter Wellesley, um, which was formerly at Great Connell, um, uh, and, but is now in St. Bridget's uh, in Kildare, the Aridstown Wayside Cross, um, and a tomb, the tomb slab again of uh, Donald MacPierce um, Archdeacon. Equally, uh, the footrest or small seat was rarely included, but occasionally we see Christ's feet um, atop a set of steps, as on the cross of Clogher, or propped up by an angel, as on the indulgence slab um, in St. Bridget's. In the practice of judicial execution, uh, such supports were designed to prolong the suffering um, and lengthen the time taken to die rather than offer relief to the dying. And so when incorporated into the scene, they serve only to heighten the sense of suffering. The third account of the Passion of Our Lord in the Larabrach specifies a crown of sharp pointed thorns. Um, and is typical, as is typical of the majority of images of the crucifixion in the later period, the Larabrach Christ wears a crown of thorns, um, a spiky interlaced circlet. Spiked versions also appear on the Sheephouse and Sligo Friary processional crosses, and an interlaced version occurs on the tomb chest in Holy Cross Abbey. The preferred mode is, however, a rope-like circlet, um, as we see here on a cross from Kilmore Churchyard in Meath, and the tombs of Walter Brannock and Catherine Power in Jarpoint Abbey, and Pearson Margaret Butler in St. Canice's. 
From the Carolingian era, theologians interpreted the crown of thorns as Christ bearing the sins of humanity on his head, and it was in these terms that it was understood by one 15th century poet when he wrote, "'Twas our sin which the wounded breast and the crown of thorns forgave." As a motif, however, the crown of thorns appears infrequently in Western art of the earlier Middle Ages, which preferred a royal crown or bare head, as in the Southampton Psalter, and we see this on Romanesque, uh, Romanesque crucifixion figures um, also. It has widely been documented that the cult of the crown of thorns became increasingly popular across Europe after Saint-Louis acquired the crown of thorns um, and numerous other relics of the crucifixion and built the Sainte Chapelle in Paris in its honour in the late 1230s and 1240s. And passion narratives across uh, Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries elaborate on the torments of, on the torments of Christ, um, describing his beard being pulled, his cloak removed with such violence that it pulled pieces of flesh with it, and the thorns in the crown so sharp and long that they pierce his brain pan. This elaboration in text is paralleled in the contemporary elaboration in imagery with the introduction of new themes and motifs, including the Man of Sorrows, the Pieta, um, and in general, an increased attention paid to the role of the Virgin in the Passion. Huge nails bind Christ's feet and hands to the cross in the Larabrach. In 14th and 15th century depictions of the crucifixion, the hands are frequently and considerably enlarged to draw eyes to the wounds, um, as we see here on the tomb of Walter Brannock, um, and Archbishop Tregory in St. Patrick's in Dublin, um, and in the Cray tomb uh, in Ennis Friary. As we've already discussed, the Gospel accounts are sparing in their details in the scene of crucifixion, and so despite the traditional representation of nails as instruments of the Passion, none of the Gospel accounts actually describe Jesus as nailed to the cross. The story of Doubting Thomas is the first mention of the nails, um, where he asks to see the mark of the nails in his hands, and that's John 20, 25. This may have been a mistranslation for wrists, but it is also possible that Jesus was both nailed and tied to the cross. It was both more common and more practical for the Romans to bind the arms of the person being crucified to the crossbeam with ropes, and then nail or bind the feet afterwards. In an early uh, medieval Irish context, um, the Irish Gospels of St. Gall um, show Christ bound to the uh, cross with elaborately stylized ropes. That this tradition continued into the later period is demonstrated in a poem attributed to Duncan Morrow-Dalig when he writes that God's son was bound on that tree, divine suffering. This practice is witnessed in the Lauerbrach account of the Passion of the, of the Apostle Andrew, the text recounts that Aegeus, proconsul of the city of Patras, ordered Andrew to be hung upon the cross without thrusting, thrusting nails through his hands or feet so that his pain might be greater for being long thereon. And so Andrew was tied to the cross with cords and lifted up high. The prevailing theory of atonement in medieval theology held that Christ saved mankind through self-sacrifice, shedding his own blood to wash away the sins of the world. That this tradition was held in Ireland is clearly demonstrated in contemporary bardic poetry. As one poet writes, a man like me cannot repay thee for the blood thou didst shed for my sins. Following this, medieval theology demanded that nails rather than ropes bound Christ to the cross, as only nails could produce the necessary blood loss. The meditations on the life of Christ, for example, stress that he is so tortured that he can move nothing except his head. Those three nails sustain the whole weight of his body. 
He bears the bitterest pain and is affected beyond anything that can possibly be said or thought. As such, nails became a standard and necessary element of the iconography of the crucifixion. Depictions of the crucifixion in Ireland prior to about 1200 typically show the body of Christ as pierced by four nails, with the feet placed in parallel and nailed individually, as we see here on the High Cross in Dicerdo D, um, or on the Kells crucifixion plaque that's now in the British Museum. The arrival of the Gothic style in the 13th century, however, brought about a change in the iconography, preferring a single nail through both feet. Um, we see here on the Dynac Argid, the Sheephouse Processional Cross, um, the Shrine of St. Patrick's Tooth, um, and of course um, in the Lower Brack. A single nail uh, offers a visually more elegant design, but also an awkward and contorted pose appropriate to the disquieting scene. This imagery is also found in Irish literature of the later period. Uh, that three nails were used rather than four is precisely stated by Thai Gogo Higging, where he says, of, the third, of uh, the third of Christ's 15 sorrows, I shall mention the four wounds of the three nails, the wounds in his feet and hands, wounds heavy with torture. Likewise, Dermot O'Cahig describes Christ as lifted up on three nails. The cult of the five wounds developed a following 15th century Ireland, as witnessed by frequent appearances of the motif in literary sources and liturgical practices. Taigo Gohigin writes of a burning affliction as the depth of his wounds, the bursting of his, breath, of his breast, the splitting of his feet, white skin and his hands reddened palms. Philip Buck Gohigin elaborates on the tortured body of Christ to consider the dislocation of his limbs and how the bursting of his sinews could be heard. The popularity of this devotion was in part due to the extravagant uh, indulgences associated with it, offering remission of 32,755 years in purgatory. Its perceived power in the earthly realm, however, was also highly valued, and this is perhaps best illustrated in a contemporary account of the Battle of Nocteau in 1504. In preparation for battle against the O'Briens and the McWilliam Burks, the Earl of Kildare requested a mass of the five wounds to be sung successively for his godspeed. Sometime later, the daughter of MacWilliam Burke requested a monk to likewise sing the Mass of the Five Wounds in order to ensure victory for her side. As the monk sang his Mass, however, an angel appeared to him stating that the petition had already been granted to the Earl of Kildare. Six days later, Kildare was victorious at Nocto. Given the power of this devotion to the Five Wounds and the insistence in literature of the power of Christ's blood in remission of sins, it is notable that the wound in the side appears relatively infrequently in Irish art of the period. Um, a small scale of these images, uh, I'd say you'll struggle to see them, so I've, I've put a little arrow next to the side wound so that you can see it there. Um, so this is the Bally McCasey processional cross. Um, Christ does have a side wound here. Um, the Cray tomb in the Franciscan Friary in Ennis um, incorporates the moment of the spearing in the side into the scene of their crucifixion. Um, and uh, the angels on the indulgence slab are collecting blood and water flowing from the side. Um, but by and large, this wound is absent in Irish depictions. This may be due in part uh, to the surviving media and to wear and tear. Um, but as this is unlikely in the case of the Lara Brack, the absence of the side wound was presumably intentional and or modelled uh, from an image without one. Um, and so this leads to the very obvious question of where the exemplar used by Murcha uh, 
um, came from. Um, and I'd like to come back to this, hopefully, um, in the written version of this paper. Um, and this is in comparison, um, this, uh, the absence of the side wind is in comparison to uh, European um, counterparts where a um, 15th century Northern English Carthusian Miscellany, for example, um, has four miniatures of or focusing on the wounds, um, including these two, uh, which are being lovingly presented by Christ uh, to a supplicant, um, in addition to multiple other images of the crucifixion and the passion. Um, similarly, this French book of ours in Paisley has a parchment by folium insert supposedly recording the exact measurements of the side wound of Christ. Blood and water or blood and wine are referred to multiple times in the Lower Brack Passions, sometimes in uncomfortably graphic detail. The Passion of George, for instance, um, describes how the king caused the spikes to be driven through his feet so that the blood flowed like water from a fountain. Next, he had an iron hammer driven into his head so that the brains came out through the martyr's nostrils. The first and third accounts of the Passion of Our Lord both describe Longinus spearing Christ so that there rushed out at once two streams from his side, a stream of blood and a stream of water. Finally, the Passion of Longinus introduces its protagonists as one of the soldiers who was at Christ's crucifixion who came and brought a long spear in his hand with which he wounded Christ in his side and split his heart in twain so that blood and wine came out. The scribe of the Larabrak clearly did not shy away from gruesome details. Violent imagery was equally present in contemporary bardic poetry, which often vividly described the excruciating torment endured by Christ and enumerated each individual wound. Um, as one poet writes, on God, Mary's son, were 16 wounds and 656,000. In contrast, the Lower Brack miniature um, offers a quieter and more poignant representation of the scene, as visual artists preferred a more introspective and devotional approach. Late medieval Irish artists tended to be more reserved in their depiction of blood and horror than their more graphic and gory counterparts in Northern Europe. The Ballymacasey processional cross has droplets of blood in the palms of the hands, whereas Dutch audiences were treated to images like this. While not strictly a crucifixion scene, Christ carrying the cross in the Shanachus Berka is an unusually gruesome image in an Irish context, though the European influence on the artist has been widely noted. Um, this scene shows blood streaming down Christ's face from the wounds of the crown of thorns, um, and the, the cross itself is already heavily bloodstained in a foreshadowing of the event. Clearly, Irish artists were inspired by the Gothic style from abroad, but they maintained their own local style of measure and restraint. Um, and how very appropriate uh, in a manuscript which we have discussed has focused intently um, on both the local and the universal, um, but also moves freely between the vernacular and Latin. In all of our discussion of late medieval crucifixion imagery so far, the Lara Brack illumination is the only manuscript example I've been able to show you, as there are no comparable extant images. Those of you who've been following this conference series will appreciate that surviving figure illumination from late medieval Ireland is a rarity. Where figures do occur, uh, they seem to be inspired from manuscripts of foreign design. Uh, these farming figures in the lower margins of Kings Inn 17, for example, have considerably closer parallels in Badapage illumination in English and European manuscripts than they do in Rawlinson B502 or Laranahira. 
That said, they are paired with zoomorphic initials and an introductory folio completely covered in, or in ornamentation reminiscent of early medieval carpet pages, seemingly, seeming, bleh, seamlessly rather, blending uh, traditional, local and imported designs. The producer of the Lower Brack, therefore, um, is no exception when he has incorporated two ribbon initials, 13 knotted wire type initials, typical of the Insular Scriptorium, into his folia, alongside miniatures of the crucifixion and a menorah. So where is the Lower Brack crucifixion scene and how does it function? Miniatures are very rare in late medieval Ireland. Unlike the other known handful of examples, which largely provide thematic frontispieces or cycles to their texts, our miniature uh, is found in the middle of the third account of the Passion, um, in the middle of a column of text, occupying only about one third of the column's height. The, this placement does not provide the reader with a graceful, eye-catching introduction to a text um, or some sort of readability, um, sense of readability that Chantal was discussing, um, but rather it's actually a jarring and awkward disruption. This abrupt insertion perhaps gives us an indication as to its function. The lines of text preceding the miniature a call for woe to befall those who testified falsely against Christ and those who failed to act out against injustice. The lines following the miniature describe Christ's ordeal on Golgotha. The image of the crucifixion therefore lies at a critical juncture. In interrupting the text, the image helps to create a sense of immediacy, provokes the reader's devotional gaze, inviting them to meditate upon the image and engage in a meaningful and emotive exchange. A rare pause in the text gives the reader a moment to absorb the moral implications of failing to act out against injustice. The distressing image of a suffering Christ provides a visual anchor for contemplation, helps to make a past event present, and helps the viewer to imagine themselves before an agonised Christ on the cross. This devotional moment is then followed by a harrowing text textual account of the ordeal, reinforcing the sense of direct cause and effect between, between the sins of man and the suffering of Christ. Um, and as we've already heard, this is not a unique case in the manuscript. Uh, yesterday, Wesley was describing the text of the Phalera as conceived of as a performance, um, and that the Cayley Day were occupied with performance, action, re recitation beyond that of the standard divine office. Likewise, Connor was just emphasizing the expectation of oral delivery in the sermons. This manuscript expected an active, performative interaction between reader and manuscript. And we see this similar intention in English books from the time, where the producers expect the reader to engage in a multi-sensory devotional experience of seeing, speaking, touching, contemplating. The material object, therefore, plays a crucial role in the practice of devotion as the beholder interacts uh, physically with the folio of the manuscript, witnessing the suffering Christ and reflecting on the text and its significance. The importance of such immediacy in literature is evident where authors directly address their audience and instruct them to act in a particular manner. Um, the scribal notes, uh, sorry, excuse me, the, the Smutha Bahakrius encourage the reader to meditate on the various stages of Christ's death by considering the instruments of the Passion. Raise the eyes of your mind now and you will see a band of them thrusting the cross into the ground and another group preparing a sign and another gang readying a hammer and another crew preparing a ladder and other instruments. The text directs the reader to visualise the horror step by step in order to participate and ultimately share in the suffering. 
Such direct instruction expects a deeply emotional engagement with the reader. The experience of devotion should be so vivid as to elicit a physical response and to participate in the suffering of Christ. The Passion of the Image of Christ uh, that we heard about yesterday in the Lower Brack um, addresses Christ directly. Who can tell thy humility and lowliness, O Jesus? For thou art the true God of heaven and earth. Thou didst on that human flesh to save mankind, and that flesh was crucified in an awful, hideous death by the unbelieving in whom was no fear nor dread. Direct interaction between the supplicant and a physical object played a regular role in devotional practice in medieval Ireland. Personal devotional pendants worn on the body permitted the owner to contemplate the suffering of Christ where and whenever they chose. A number of such pendants survive in the National Museum of Ireland, um, and the tomb of Sir Walter Birmingham shows him wearing one around his neck. Likewise, the kissing of manuscript miniatures was such standard practice in Europe that illuminators sometimes provided uh, a cross of simple, uh, a simple gilded cross as a sacrificial substitute in the lower margin in order to preserve the image of the crucifixion, um, as we see here in this Dutch example. The touching and kissing of devotional imagery and relics was a wide enough practice in Ireland that in 1539 instructions were given to the commissioners in Ireland to investigate and root out such superstitious and idolatrous traditions. The tangible benefits of prayer and contemplation on the crucifixion were clear to the scribe of the Liber, of the Liber Flavis uh, Fergiusorum, who writes, if you go to mass out of love and pray before the cross of crucifixion, the doors of heaven will open to you and the doors of hell will close and all the demons will not be able to attack you. Likewise, the power of images was well understood by the scribe of the Lower Brack. The narrative of the Passion of the Image of Christ relates, as we heard, not only the intense vitriolic emotion aroused in the community of Veritas in Syria but, uh, upon the discovery of a secret image of Christ, but also the miraculous deeds associated with it. First, the townspeople vented their anger upon the man believed to be at fault for concealing the image, though blameless, as Lizzie, Lizzie described yesterday. He was dismissed from the synagogue, verbally attacked and brutally scourged until he was left half dead. The community then turned their attentions on the offending image. They flung it to the ground, they spat on the face and countenance of the Lord's image, and smote it on the face with their hands and fists. Unappeased, they thrust sharp iron nails through its feet and hands, as had been done at the first passion. Poured vinegar over the mouth of the image, smote him on the head with a rod in an attempt to recreate the crown of thorns. And the savage attack ended with one town's person fetching a spear and bravely wounding the side of the image therewith. Upon doing so, however, there befell a marvellous wonder, never before that surpassed or equalled, for the image brought with it miraculous deeds and wondrous events. As at the time of the first passion, when the image was crucified, the elements shook and the heavens rocked at the insufferable crimes committed. When the side of the image was pierced, it issued blood and water that healed people of every sickness and disease throughout Asia Minor. Returning to the Larabrak miniature, the pity and isolation of Christ's sacrifice is highlighted in the image where he appears alone on the cross. Earlier medieval depictions, such as on the cross of Muradhuk um, and Monaster Boyce, tend to depict the crucifixion as part of a narrative sequence, in this case, including the mocking of Christ, the resurrection and the ascension. Later medieval depictions, um, in contrast, 
tend to distill the iconographic moment into Christ alone, as on the Fur to Crucifixion plaque um, and the Kilcormick fragment, or accompanied by his principal mourners, the Virgin and John the Evangelist, as we see here in Inishtig um, and the tomb of John Grace um, in St. Canis's. Devotional literature, such as Bonaventure's uh, Lignum Vitae in the dialogue of Pseudo-Ansam and the Meditations, emphasise the emotional suffering of the Virgin at the death of her son and encourage readers to share in her distress at the scene of crucifixion. In line with this thinking, distilling the iconographic moment to a quiet scene therefore offers a more devotional treatment of the subject, provoking a sense of grief, reflection and personal interaction. And we see a similar focus in the choice of dress, uh, where the Larabrack Christ is dressed in a short loincloth. Um, earlier Irish representations, such as the Romanesque cross at Monanca in Tipperary and the, and the Clamacnoise crucifixion black, depicted Christ fully dressed in a long Perizonian. Theologically, the loincloth heightens the humiliation of Christ during the Passion. A passage in the meditation states that when Christ was stripped of his clothing, the virgin was filled with sorrow at the shame and nakedness and ran to cover him with her veil. This passage is retained in the Smith Valkyries, the first Irish language version of the text. Um, and iconographically, the loincloth afforded artists a greater opportunity to convey the suffering through the wounds and the emaciation of the frame over a full length garment. This acute emphasis on shame, suffering and isolation uh, is perfectly in keeping with this potentially Franciscan background that we have been discuss discussing. And it's also apparent in Irish depictions of the instruments of the Passion or Arma Christi and the image of the Man of Sorrows during the period. In keeping with the wider European context, as mentioned earlier, throughout the 14th and 15th centuries, the number of instruments of the Passion depicted in Ireland grew and, incre and led to increasingly graphic imagery. Uh, this cross in Kilmore Churchyard in Meath pairs a scene of the crucifixion on the south side with the five wounds in a circular arrangement alongside the crown of thorns, ladder, scourge, hammer, three nails and pliers on the north side. Uh, the tomb of uh, Bishop Walter Wellesley in Kildare and a sculpture in the Franciscan Priory in Ennis both present uh, a poignant image of the Man of Sorrows with a beaten, bound, and emaciated Christ seated among the instruments of his torture. Miniature in the Shanicus Burka presents a devotional image of the Man of Sorrows, or the Five Wounds, depicting a bound, wounded, and heavily bleeding Christ gazing outwards at the viewer and carrying the staff from his mocking. Christ stands on a dais surrounded by the figures pointing at him. Through their gestures and gazes, these figures invite the viewer to behold the broken body and contemplate the humiliation of their saviour. The iconography of the Larabrack crucifixion is one of suffering, isolation and humiliation. In line with contemporary European thinking and iconography, the artist emphasised Christ's sacrifice, his pain and his humiliation in order to save mankind. The artist did not, however, follow in the trend of graphic, bloody imagery popular in Northern Europe at the time, or indeed the violent imagery of the Lauerbrack itself, or bardic poetry. Instead, the Lauerbrack artist preferred a more poignant and devotional approach to the crucifixion, as was typical of his Irish contemporaries. Images could be powerful objects, tangible catalysts of prayer and devotion. The scribe of the Lauerbrack understood the power of images. 
abruptly inserted in a column of text, this miniature Christ on the cross was designed to move the reader, to prompt their prayers and contemplation, and to provoke their devotional gaze. Thank you.